and welcome to the Reading Wave podcast episode 7 with me, David Ervin. For this programme, I would like to read to you from three books that I've been reading myself recently. I hope you don't mind. It's a bit of self-indulgence on my part, but I think you're going to like these. The first book I'd like to read from is by Michael Palin. The ex-Monty Python, of course the famous world traveller and one-time president of the Royal Geographical Society. The book that he's written that I'd like to read from is called Erebus, The Story of a Ship. Before I tell you why I wanted to read from Michael Palin's book, let's get to the extract that I've chosen to read for you. This extract is from a chapter called The Inuit Story and forms part of the end of the narrative. Taking all this information, rumour and folktale together, it looks as if the most likely scenario of the last days of the men and ships of the Franklin expedition goes something like this. In April 1848, ten months after Franklin's death, Crozier and Fitzjames lead the remaining men with three sledges some 15 miles across the ice to Victory Point. Here, Lieutenant Irving is deputed to go to the cairn a few miles away and fetch one of the two all-well notes left 11 months earlier by Gore and Devaux. The note's cheerful message is amended by Fitzjames in the light of the grim events of the last winter. Crozier countersigns it in a slightly weaker hand, adding that they are leaving the next day for Baxfish River. They leave a lot of material at Victory Point, presumably to lighten the load. This would account for the piles of blankets and ropes found by Hobson. They must have made 50 miles down the coast before they stopped, leaving the boat behind, probably as shelter and to further lighten the load. This is where the party first split, with those still fit enough taking some of the provisions and continuing south, possibly splitting again as they headed for Back's Fish River. The others, maybe because they had scurvy so badly they were unable to move, stayed behind, whilst others may have been well enough to stagger back to the ship. A line of skeletons marks the progress south. One found east of Cape Herschel is probably that of Thomas Armitage, who had Pegler's notebook beside him where he fell. Another body, believed at the time to be Henry Levesconti, was recovered by Hall and was later returned to England. Two skeletons were found by the Amundsen expedition in 1904. That the last survivors crossed the strait, discovering the Northwest Passage as they went, is borne out by the findings of several bodies on the mainland at Starvation Cove, only a few miles from the, from the Bax Fish River. This was the end of the road for the Southern Party. The handful of men who, if inward testimony is right, 
had remained on King William Island and was seen back at the ship almost certainly survived a fourth winter before leaving the ships. Again described in Inuit testimony to shoot caribou but never returning. There is no evidence to suggest that by the end of 1850 any of the 129 men of the Franklin expedition were left alive. Which means that of all the rescue operations sent out, only the very earliest would have stood any chance of finding them alive. So this book forms the history of the ship HMS Erebus and her sister ship HMS Terror which formed the vessels for the expedition late 1840s to discover uh, a path through the Northwest Passage. Palin's book is of course fact-based, extremely well researched and very entertaining. The reason I chose it is because some of you may already know and may already have seen a TV series on BBC Two and currently showing all episodes on the BBC iPlayer called The Terror. And this is a TV series that fictionalises the history of this ship and the HMS Terror. It's a very entertaining drama series, but it is a drama series. The fact-based evidence is in Michael Palin's book. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy the TV series. The second book I would like to read from is called The Mystery of Charles Dickens by A.N. Wilson. Yes, it is yet another biography of the great man himself, but I'm a big fan of Dickens, so here goes. The part of the book that I wish to read from is called The Mystery of the Cruel Marriage. Now, the clever thing that Ann uh, Wilson has done here is he's taken Dickens's life and sectionalised it. And in each separate section, he delves deeper into that part of Dickens's life that he wishes to explain to us in a more detailed way than any other biography that I've ever read has done about Dickens's life. The part that I want to read from is from the chapter entitled The Mystery of the Cruel Marriage and it details Dickens's marriage to Catherine Hogarth. To set up the passage I would like to read from A.N. Wilson's book. At the age of 19 Dickens met and fell in love with Maria Beadnell who was 20 years old and from a wealthy banking family. The young Charles harboured thoughts of marriage, but the family considered him unworthy and Maria flirted with him, calling him a mere boy. Consequently, the marriage never happened. Cut to 23, 24 years later, when Dickens is a household name and very famous, Maria Winter, as she now is, married to Mr Winter, strikes up a seemingly flirtatious correspondence with Charles Dickens. As a result of the correspondence, the Winters and the Dickens have dinner. 
Now, let me leave A.N. Wilson's words to describe how cruel Charles Dickens could be. The meeting with his old love, like everything else in a novelist's heartless life, was grist to Dickens' mill. The pathos of it was retained, but coated in farce, like sea salt lending piquancy to vanilla ice cream. So many of the saddest things in Dickens' experience were transubstantiated into farce. As he planned the novel that grew out of his father's ruin and life in the Marshalsea, he would also draw on the humiliations visited upon him by the Beadnells, who had appeared to be somebody when he was a nobody, but were now seen as the banking nobodies who had cruelly re rejected a genius. Maria's harmless prattle, her nervous inability to finish sentences, her gross size, her exhausting and embarrassing coquettishness, all became the ludicrous and unforgettable Flora Finching in Little Dorrit. For good measure, he gave her the companionship not of a dull husband, but of a dead husband's aunt, the ferocious old Mrs. Mr. F's aunt, whose surreal and inconsequential outbursts are among the funniest things he ever devised. When we lived at Henley, Barnes Gander was stole by tinkers. That's from Little Dorrit, chapter 1, page 13. The disillusionment he felt with Maria was strong, but the dinner went ahead as planned on the 7th of March. Mr Winter was a bore. Mrs Winter, fat, simpering, silly, had a bad cold which Dickens, always prone to colds, caught. Her fate was sealed. What the real Maria could not know, because unlike Dickens and the characters whom he had been dreaming up ever since boyhood, she was not a character in a novel, was that she, Maria Beadnell, had ceased to exist. Flora Finching had come into being. Her attempt to get in touch with Dickens after this disastrous dinner were met with brush-offs. Her usefulness was now at an end. Kate Dickens, who knew her susceptible husband all too well, could read his disillusionment very easily. Like his first love, Maria, Kate Hogarth, having reached her forties and born Dickens' ten children, one of whom had died, was also fat and unappealing, with bad teeth and a red face. She was in no doubt that in his heart, if not yet in his bedroom or his day-by-day -day existence, she had been demoted. And she must, on some level, have feared complete banishment. We learn in this book by A.N. Wilson that our beloved Charles Dickens, second only in some people's opinion to Shakespeare, could in fact at the same time be a great writer and philanthropist, but also a very selfish and cruel man.
third and final book I would like to read from in this episode is the 2020 Booker Prize winner by Douglas Stewart entitled Shuggy Bain. Stewart tells the story of Shuggy Bain in the 1980s, the Thatcher years, in poverty-stricken Glasgow. Shuggy's life in this time takes him from the age of six to the age of 16. His family consists of his mother, Agnes, older brother, Alexander, known as Leek, and the eldest, his sister, Catherine. The feckless father leaves this family for another woman and another family. As well as struggling with the abject poverty, Shuggy, his sister Catherine and brother Leek also have to cope with their mother Agnes's daily sinking deeper and deeper into alcoholism. For a debut novelist, Stuart draws characters that positively leap off the page into your imagination. This book is beautifully written. It was March and it was her birthday. Shuggy stole her two handfuls of dying daffodils from the packy shop. Since the afternoon at Leaks, he had hidden the benefit books and made sure they had enough to eat before she bought her weekly drink. Since Christmas, he had held a little of the metre money back out of her sight to give her a few pounds to play at the bingo on her special day. She could take in the envelope half full of coins and held it to her chest like it was the crown jewels. She had been so happy. When the police brought her home the next morning, the air in the flat was already thick and sickly with the pollen of the decaying daffodils. They had found her wandering by the River Clyde. She had lost her shoes and her good purple coat. She hadn't even made it to the bingo. Agnes couldn't look at Shuggy for shame, and he wouldn't look at her for a deep sense of his own stupidity. The chill of spending a March night outside was rattling sore in her damp lungs, so Shuggy poured a deep bath and sprinkled it liberally with cooking salt. He ironed and laid out clean clothes. He made her some milky tea, which he set outside the bathroom door, and then he left without either of them having said a word. Dressed for school, he ran across the main road with the other children and was surprised to hear two 50 pence pieces from the, the gas meter jangling around in his anorak pocket. It stopped him cold. He turned them over in his hand, climbed aboard the first bus going anywhere and asked the driver how far the money would take him. The view from the 16th floor of the Sight Hill Tower made him feel tiny. The city was alive below him and he had never even seen half of it. Shuggy pushed his legs through the breeze block wall of the laundry room and looked out over the endless sprawl. For hours he watched as orange buses snaked through the grey sandstone. He watched as leaded nimbus darkened the gothic spires of the infirmary while elsewhere, obstinate sunlight brought the glass and steel of the university to life. His arms and legs felt heavy hanging out over the city, but he found the envelope 
in his jacket pocket and took it out to consider it for the hundredth time. It had no return address on it, only a postmark that said Barrow and Furnace. He didn't know where Barrow and Furnace was, but it didn't sound like Scotland. It was a Christmas card that had arrived two months too late. Leek had found work somewhere else. They were building new houses and they needed young men who could turn to any trade, tiling, plastering, roofing. He said the money was decent and he didn't know when it would be back. There had been no art school yet, maybe next year, he had said, or the one after. Instead, there was a nice girl and she worked in a tea room and they liked to go walking together on something called a moor. The card had a £20 note taped inside, a new note, crisp and never folded. Shuggy had wondered about that money for a long time. He allowed himself a brief daydream of Leek waiting for him at some distant bus station. Then he spent it on fresh meat and surprised Agnes with a heaping bowl of stovies. There had been something else inside the Christmas card, a page from a lined school jotter covered with pencil drawing of a small boy. He was sat cross-legged at the foot of an unmade bed, his back to the artist so he could see the base of his bare spine where the top and bottom of his pyjamas didn't quite meet. Whatever was holding the boy's attention was nestled discreetly in the curved crook of his body. The boy was engrossed, his face in shadow, and he looked like he was playing with small toy horses that could have easily been wooden toys, military or Trojan. Shuggy knew what they really were, that they were the scented dolls, bright and cheerful, and for little girls. They were the pretty ponies, and Leek had known. Leek had always known. The cold north wind roared around the concrete laundry room and pinched Shuggy's nose red. When he couldn't suffer it any longer, he put the card inside his coat and went home again. And that's it for episode 7 of the Reading Wave podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to extracts from Erebus, the story of a ship by Michael Palin, A.N. Wilson's The Mystery of Charles Dickens and Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. I've enjoyed reading them to you. I hope you enjoyed it too. It's now March 2021 and we've all been in lockdown for uh, a year. So I hope we're all looking forward to ending the lockdown and all coming out to enjoy some sort of normality again. But in any case, stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye for now.